welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. There have been more major developments today, Tuesday, in the constitutional crisis in Spain over Catalan independence, including a press conference in Brussels by the deposed president of Catalonia, Carlos Puigdemont. We'll have the latest on that story from our correspondents in Brussels and Catalonia. But first this week, to the sensational developments in the United States in the ongoing investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller into alleged ties between Russia and Donald Trump's election campaign team. On Monday, the former head of that team, Paul Manafort, and his business partner, Rick Gates, were charged with criminal activity, including conspiracy against the United States, arising from their work as lobbyists for the pro-Russian former president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych. At the same time, news emerged that another former advisor to the Trump campaign, George Papadopoulos, has pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about the nature of his communications with Russian officials during the election campaign. To unpick the significance of these events and look at where they might lead, Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now. Hi, Suzanne. Hi. Suzanne, you, you join us from the airport where you're about to catch a flight to Seattle to report on, on our Taoiseach Leah Varadkar's uh, visit to the, the West Coast. So, so such is the life of the, the busy Washington correspondent. Um, to come back to, to uh, the, the developments in um, this, uh, the Mueller investigation, there were two separate developments uh, on Monday, both significant in, in different ways. We'll take the Manafort and Gates charges first. What are they charged with? Well, essentially, the Manafort and Gates charges um, are basically a a list of 12 different charges they have uh, been indicted uh, on. And really, it's in the realm of money laundering, of tax evasion. It's it's a kind of a more of a regular white collar crime. What we learned uh, through the 31 page document that was published by the FBI on Monday before these two men appeared in court uh, was that uh, Manafort in particular had been funneling hundreds, tens of millions of dollars uh, through offshore accounts, mainly in Cyprus, money that he received mainly from pro-Russian Ukrainian uh, individuals, and then which were funneled through these accounts to uh, America, which he then used that money to fund a very lavish lifestyle. Uh, their accounts and payments to antique de- dealers, to expensive clothes shops in New York, uh, to uh, interior design for his house in Virginia. Uh, so we really got an in-depth uh, analysis and insight into his uh, whole relationship with this uh, Ukrainian um, individuals. The charges are quite colourfully stated, aren't they? As you just alluded to it there, they go into those kind of details. The charges mention the lavish lifestyle and they give some details of what the two men were, were spending this, this money on. In total, there were $75 million actually channeled through their offshore accounts. Yes, and this was happening for quite some time, from about 2006 to at least 2016. And Manafort's lawyer himself made the point, earning money from foreign uh, payments is, is not a crime in itself. Of course, what uh, the FBI are suggesting was that Manafort essentially hid this from the tax man. We also have a second secondary stream of charges, if you like, which relates to the fact that uh, these payments were not disclosed um, as payments from a foreign entity when Manafort and Gates were working for the Trump campaign. So you're into a whole other issue there about disclosure. Uh, that's illegal, essentially. Um, and of course, similar things have emerged about Mike Flynn, the former national security advisor, that he too received money from Turkey and other sources and did not disclose this while he was working um, in, in politics, essentially. So that's a kind of second strand, if you like, of what these two men were charged with. And they they, they command very big sentences. Money laundering, in particular, uh, command sentences of up to 20 years. So it's a, it's a very serious 
serious crime. Okay, and as you said, it's a very serious crime, uh, money laundering, um, working as a lobbyist for, for a foreign government without uh, de- declaring it and so on. But of course, the question then, we come back to the question, what this had to do with Donald Trump and his election campaign. Now, we know Trump, of course, sacked Paul Manafort um, in August 2016 after some some uh, reports emerged of money he had received from Viktor Yanukovych. Um, Trump tweeted yesterday that, you know, he said, look, sorry, this is years ago before Paul Manafort was part of the Trump campaign. So um, what are the connections really between these charges and the campaign? Or are there such connections? Mm. Well, Trump is right in the sense that, in fact, some of these investigations into Manafort's behaviour actually stretch back many years before the Russian investigation even began. So he is right in that point. But crucially... Uh, this document states that some of this activity happened right up to, at the, as they put it, at least 2016. So we have a situation whereby uh, Mr. Manafort was receiving this money right when he was working for the Trump administration. Now, um, of course, the, the, the basic question really, if you like, is whether Mr. Manafort, why was he working for Mr. Trump? Um, was it to represent Russia, essentially represent his pro-Russian clients to get access to Mr. Trump. That's the really nub of this question. Um, But uh, Mr. Trump is correct, as I say, in that um, in terms of he was not, there's no mention of Trump in this document. Uh, There's no mention of the administration of the White House in this document. Um, And of course, Mr. Trump tweeted about this uh, in the hours after its uh, after its publication, and there was reports of there was widespread relief within the White House that it was just these two men in this uh, in these in terms of these arrests, because of course Manafort it had been suspected that he would find himself at the centre of this organi- this investigation, because back in January the FBI undertook a very high profile raid of his home in Virginia. So in that sense, it wasn't expected. Um, it wasn't expected that he he would escape. Uh, probing in this investigation. In saying that, as you say, the key question in terms of uh, Mr. Trump's involvement in this is whether we can trace any links between Manafort, uh, Trump and uh, the administration and links with Russia. The reality is that Manafort was the uh, campaign chair. So, of course, there's questions why and how did the Trump campaign manage Uh, to appoint someone who was actually under investigation at the time by the FBI for this kind of activity. And of course, some people on the Republican side have said the FBI should have actually warned some people in Trump's campaign, hang on, don't uh, be careful about uh, appointing this individual, Mr. Manafort. We're actually investigating him. Um, So it does raise questions, if nothing else, about the judgment, but also if there was something uh, more sinister going on. Uh, But of course, and I know we're going to get to the the third crime, if you like, or a charge. Uh, But I think the links between Mr. Manafort and the other person, uh, George Papadopoulos, and whether Paul Manafort is the official that's named in documents connected with Papadopoulos, that could be very significant because that would incriminate Paul Manafort uh, and show that he was uh, actively encouraging other people to, people connected with the campaign, to travel to Russia uh, to get uh, dirt, as uh, the FBI puts it on Hillary Clinton. Okay, and let's come down to George Papadopoulos. A separate development, but as you just said, possibly also linked you know, to, to Manafort in, in some ways. But just remind us first, what role did Papadopoulos have in the Trump um, campaign team and what has he been charged with? It's an entirely separate type of charge, isn't it? Yes, and I think this is what really took people by surprise, not only in the White House, but throughout Washington. I mean, there's been quite a lot about leaks in this city over the last few months, but really this had been kept very much under wraps. So people were quite shocked that this name um, emerged into the public domain yesterday. When um, the indictment was filed, was published on Monday morning, separately the FBI released a separate tranche of documents 
um, which contained information about this gentleman, George Papadopoulos. Um, it, uh, he is only, he's 30 years of age, and the White House was keen to stress yesterday that he had a very limited role with the com- Trump, Trump campaign, that he was only a volunteer. But um, he was employed by the Trump campaign, albeit on a volunteer basis, as were most people, and that would typically be the situation uh, in campaigns of this nature. Um, back around March 2016, as a foreign policy advisor, Trump himself mentioned uh, Papadopoulos' name in an interview with the Washington Post when he set out, um, kind of with pride, if you like, who he had hired as a foreign policy advisor and mentioned this gentleman in particular. Um, and also, of course, these documents show that Papadopoulos was communicating and getting replies on his emails from senior people in the Trump campaign. So obviously he did have quite an important role if, if he, was, he wasn't just somebody who had, who had turned up, uh, you know, kind of student volunteer who was looking to help out. Um, so that, but in, in, in terms of his profile here, he's been very low profile since then. He kind of slipped away from the radar uh, and he'd been working as a consultant. But what these documents show was is that back in July, he was arrested at Dulles Airport, where I am now actually, uh, um, when he got off a plane. He was arrested by the FBI. And earlier this month, on October the 5th, he pleaded guilty to misleading the FBI during an interview on January the 27th. And basically this interview, um, the documents state in this interview that Papadopoulos uh, basically played down his connections with certain certain individuals with links with Russia, in particular a professor in London with links uh, to Russia who uh, offered him emails. Um, in this initial interview, Papadopoulos uh, dismissed this as a nothing uh, quote, and um, actually, it he then uh, revisited this and pleaded guilty to misleading the FBI about the nature of this investigation. That in uh, fact he knew that these people had much more information, and that's why he was dealing with them. And, and that, this professor this he met, Suzanne, just sorry, just tried to cut mm-hmm. in, but this professor was promising him damaging information about Hillary Clinton, isn't that uh, exactly? In and in particular. He, and in particular, emails, he suggested. Um, and he was suggesting um, setting up meetings between Papadopoulos um, and other Russian officials, uh, but in particular offering uh, emails. Now, you mentioned there the White House response. We can actually hear what Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, the White House press secretary, um, had to say about this development. Sarah, can you just explain what George Papadopoulos' role with the campaign was? It was uh, extremely limited. It was a volunteer position. And again, uh, no activity was ever done in an official capacity uh, on behalf of the campaign in that regard. Now, I guess, Suzanne, even if we if we take that statement at face value, and even if Papadopoulos did have a very limited role in the Trump campaign, I suppose the question is really how who was he reporting to and how up the chain of command did, did his reports go? Yes, exactly. Now, in these documents about Papadopoulos that were uh, released, it shows that he was engaging in email contact with senior uh, campaign officials uh, in the Trump campaign. Now, this the, the individual who's been identified as a senior campaign official in this document, a number of US media outlets have actually identified that person as Paul Manafort. Now, that has not been confirmed. But if that is the case, well, then we have proof that Paul Manafort was engaging uh, with Papadopoulos on email about potentially meeting Russian officials. And this is this is the kernel of the issue. What the Papadopoulos documents show is that members of the Trump campaign team were interested and were encouraging uh, Papadopoulos to set up meetings with Russian, Russian officials on the pretext of gaining information about Hillary Clinton. And that, that's the big worry and that's the big problem for the White House now. Um, and of course, this links, this links, if you like, to 
a separate story which emerged earlier this year where Donald Trump Jr. admitted to attending a meeting at Trump Tower on the 9th of June 2016 with Paul Manafort and others in which he admitted he attended that meeting um, in the knowledge or in the hope that he was going to glean uh, incriminating information about Clinton. So those two issues are a problem for the Trump administration because they suggest at least, that there was a willingness to collude by senior members of the Trump administration when they were offered uh, information through this um, this broker, if you like, Papadopoulos, uh, with Russia. And um, so that means, as you, as you say, Suzanne, we now, we now have two confirmed instances of, of contacts between the Trump campaign team or members of it and, and Russian officials or Russian operatives. So is there a sense here of the walls maybe closing in or are we still a long way from seeing any evidence of actual collaboration between Trump and um, and his team and Russia? Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of issues here. In one sense, um, Manafort and Gates are due in court again, again on Thursday, but really any trial here is a long way way off, maybe six months off until a a big criminal trial may open on this, which obviously would be very high profile. And then we would be into the midterm elections next year um, when that may be surfacing. But more importantly, really, is, is what the FBI is going to do next. Um, number number one is uh, the concerns, and we were talking about the significance there of the, the, the first two uh, charges, Manafort and Gates. One of the problems is that if Manafort is being indicted for failing to disclose lodgements um, by foreign entities, well, then that's exactly that we know that uh, Mike Flynn is, is potentially guilty of the same thing. It was revealed that he received foreign donations and did not disclose that despite being um, the appointed as to the position of national security advisor. So that's a real worry. Will people like not Mike Flynn be next? Are more indictments um, on the way very shortly? Um, so that's one of the big fears um, on this. And second of all, how far is the FBI's investigation going and how far has it gone already? Papadopoulos, we now have learned, without anyone really knowing, has been cooperating with the FBI and has been talking for the last few months. Um, how much does he know? How far is he willing to incriminate others? Has he Is he pleading a more lenient sentence, for example, in order to cooperate further? So there are probably and most likely a lot of people who are very concerned, even within the White House at the moment, people who worked on the campaign, who now are employed by the administration and who may be summoned to this, may be asked about what they knew about these very detailed um, discussions that have now been recorded uh, at the height of the campaign last summer uh, between Papadopoulos, members of the campaign, as they tried to set up these meetings with Russia. Okay. Okay, well, as you say, Susanna, if he is cooperating as it seems he is, well, then presumably, if, if he does no more, um, or if he was reporting to Paul Manafort, that's something we're going to we're going to hear about in due course. But listen, I better let you go and catch that flight. So, thanks very much for that. Thank you. Bye bye. And now to Catalonia, where the Parliament voted on Friday to declare the region an independent republic. On the same day, that the Senate in Madrid voted to suspend Catalan autonomy. The government in Madrid subsequently dismissed Carlos Puigdemont, the Catalan president, and his government from office and called a regional election for December 21st. Today, Tuesday, Mr Puigdemont turned up in Brussels, where he read a prepared statement to the media and took questions. Our Europe editor, Paddy Smith, was there and joins me now. Paddy, what did Mr Puigdemont have to say? Well, basically, uh, and he made clear that he still regarded himself as the president of an independent Catalonia, um, he said that he was prepared to stay in Belgium until he got guarantees 
from the Spanish government that he would, A, be protected, uh, that they had lifted the protection of his ministers, and he was very worried about that, uh, but that also that he would be given a fair trial and, and said that the charges they face at the moment were outrageous. One of his ministers talked about them as being, being equated to terrorists in terms of the severity of the charges that they, they faced. He also um, threw down a gauntlet to the Spanish authorities and said that uh, he was prepared to say at this particular stage already that he was prepared, he was going to commit himself to accept the result of the December election, which has been called. Uh, would the Spanish government also declare that it would accept the result of that election, whatever it might be? Uh, and um, he suggested that they, that they weren't prepared to do that. Um, the rest of, of, of his speech was mainly to do with uh, a recommitment to dialogue, a recommitment to nonviolence, an explanation that he had left Spain because he believed that uh, if they had stayed and resisted in Spain, the Spanish authorities were about to launch a very violent campaign against them and that he would do everything he could to prevent uh, the people facing that sort of violence. And did he give any, any indication, Paddy, as to how long he intends to remain in Brussels? Well, he, was, he said it, it would simply depend on, on when those guarantees could be given by the Spanish authorities, uh, both for the protection, protection and, and a fair trial. Um, I think it's fair to say that the, that the sort of guarantees the Spanish government will, will not uh, explicitly uh, give, so he, he could be here for a while. He made it absolutely clear that he was in, he was in Brussels, not Belgium, because he was here at the heart of Europe and he was not getting involved in, in Belgian politics. And uh, he repeated that several times. And he, he, his pledge to take part in the December election is interesting, isn't it? Because you, as you said, on one hand, he's throwing down the gauntlet to Madrid. He's saying, we will accept the result if you accept it. But he's also, I suppose, almost de facto recognising Spanish jurisdiction in, in Catalonia, isn't, isn't he, by actually agreeing to take part in the election in the first place? Well, I think that they've maintained all along that they have been willing to support um, um, what they regard as, as democratic uh, uh, elections. And um, I think the, the really interesting thing is, is that uh, there is an element of bluff here because the uh, polls show that there's probably a majority against um, uh, independence, and so the the nationalists have have a difficult will have a difficult time. Uh, they will have to stand down their their whole uh, protest movement uh, if indeed a majority elects uh, uh, the majority elects Catalan uh, government, which is which is pro uh, union. Okay, well, Paddy, thanks for that um, really breaking news from Brussels. Um, we'll go now to Guy Hedgeco, our correspondent, who is in Sabadell in Catalonia. Um, Guy, I don't know if people have had any time yet to digest what Mr. Puigdemont had to say in Brussels today, or has there been any initial reaction? Well, the reaction just from, from the street is sort of um, kind of slight confusion, I think, still um, among Catalans, certainly pro-independence Catalans, um, in that... Um, they were taken by surprise by Mr. Puigdemont's trip to uh, Brussels, as I think w was his own party and many of his own allies. It was very much a sort of secret uh, enterprise that very few people knew about, apart from those who were closest to him. So Catalans were taken by surprise uh, by this anyway. Um, and I think to, now they're sort of digesting what he's said. Um, I think many of them want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, there had been suggestions, for example, on, so, on, on social media yesterday that this was somehow a betrayal, that he'd sort of left um, Catalonia slightly in in chaos and had taken off uh, and was renouncing his responsibilities. Um, and I think many Catalans I've spoken to today feel that 
they'd like to feel that what he's doing is possibly for the best in in their interest in terms of bringing um, this whole situation to a onto the international stage, which has kind of always been one of their aims. But clearly, um, Puigdemont, by doing this, is intensifying that campaign. And Guy, are you surprised at the, this decision by um, his party? And, and, and on Monday, we also had another pro-independence party, the uh, Esquerda Republicana de Catalunya, um, also coming to a decision to take part in the December 21st election. Are you surprised by that decision? Because it does in a way, you know, if you, if you declare an independent republic and then the country you've broken away from says, well, we're, we're having an election on your territory on December 21st, are you surprised that they would participate in that? Well, I, I was surprised that they took the decision so quickly. I mean, everything does seem to be happening so fast with this crisis at the moment anyway. Um, but I was surprised that both those parties um, sort of almost immediately took up the challenge you know, that was put down by Rajoy um, because, as you say, you know, if if they do take part in the elections, you know, they're sort of uh, tacitly admitting that they are not in an independent state, um, and that declaration from last Friday um, is not in effect. Um, but I think the problem for them was if they did not take part, then there was obviously the risk of being completely marginalised from the Spanish political scene, which, however much, sort of. Um, um, scorn or, or disrespect they may have for the sort of Spanish political stage, uh, they seem to realize they need it. And also there is the fact that the Catalan independence movement has constantly campaigned um, on the idea that voting is is the way to do things, that, that voting is democracy. And today, uh, Carlos Puigdemont said, Voting is how you resolve problems when he was talking about the, the elections. Um, and he very much seems to present um, this election in December as a plebiscite on the Spanish government's implementation of direct rule. So that's how he's presenting it, I think, to the Catalan people, um, which might be a, a clever way of doing it to try and make sure that people feel involved in this election and don't feel that they're somehow betraying their, their ideals by taking part. And of course, as Paddy mentioned there, he didn't just, you know, um, commit to taking part in the election himself. He, he he did sort of throw down that gauntlet to Madrid to say, look, we will respect the result of this election in December. Will you respect the result? Um, presumably by that, he's, he's putting it up to the Spanish government to respect a pro-independence uh, result. And, and if, if the pro-independence parties have control of parliament again, that they should accept a declaration of independence. But what are the chances of a reciprocation from Madrid to that invitation by him? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure Madrid will, will insist that it, it, it will accept um, the, the official result. I mean, I suppose the question is what exactly will be the, the circumstances of or the conditions of this election in December? Um, you know, there had been sort of reports and talk um, well, there have been over the last few weeks that, that if there is a, a Catalan election, that the Spanish government, or the, Sp the judicial authorities anyway, might somehow try and ban uh, pro-independence parties from taking part. Um, so that, I think that was that was always a sort of worry for the likes of um, of Puigdemont's party, PDCAT, and then um, ERC, the other um, big pro-independence party. Um, but I, I think... The Spanish government at the moment is very keen to try and um, to prove its democratic credentials um, 
it, it's constantly being accused by the, the independence movement of being undemocratic, of, of failing to respect the separation of powers, of being in cahoots with the judiciary. And that's been a constant accusation from Barcelona throughout this, not just throughout this crisis, but over the last few years. Um, so I, I think the Spanish government is sort of you know, going to insist that it will respect the rules, that that, that um, it will respect the, the the conditions that are laid out. And the other day, a, a member of the, the Spanish government uh, surprised many people by saying, "Well, you know, Carlos Puigdemont could um, could be a, a candidate in these elections." And many people were thinking, "Well, you know, he." he may well be in prison or, or he may now we know he may well be in Belgium when the elections take place but I think that again was the Spanish government trying to prove that it does respect the, the uh, democratic institutions and the separation of powers and speaking of those institutions Guy it were only the second full if you like uh, working day into um, this new dispensation or, or whatever you want to call it since that declaration by the Catalan Parliament on Friday. Um, is it clear yet how things are working in Catalonia? Are the civil servants going to work? Are the police doing their work? Um, um, has there been this any sign of this campaign of civil disobedience that some of the pro-independence leaders were calling for? Well, we really haven't seen that yet. I mean, yesterday we had this very strange situation where uh, in Barcelona where you know, a lot of journalists and, and other people were waiting outside the, the Catalan government headquarters in Barcelona, uh, wondering if Puigdemont would turn up for work and try and sort of defy Article 155 and the, and the direct rule um, plan. Um, he obviously he didn't turn up, and and the, there really were there were hardly any incidents. I mean, the only one of note was one of uh, Puigdemont's um, former regional ministers, Joseph Rule, he turned up for work at his department. He is the head of sustainability and territories. Um, and he has in theory been removed from office, but he nonetheless turned up and he posted a photo of himself at his desk on Twitter saying, you know, business as usual. And then he, he took off later on in the day saying he had other business to, to take care of. But there, there was no sort of clash there with the authorities. The police didn't sort of pick him up or, or throw him out. Um, so I think a lot of people were surprised at how calm things were. Now, that may just be because, partly because the Spanish government is trying to implement this in as sort of soft a way as it can, as is possible. It's, it's trying to play down the extent of this um, Article 155, trying not to present it as the occupation of a territory. But also I think it's going to be a quite a partial um, plan that's unfolded over over what well, not just a few days but probably a few weeks so we haven't seen the full extent of it yet so you know it, we, we may see some clashes later on we may see problems with civil servants refusing to take orders but we haven't really seen much of that so far so guy you've been taking soundings um you know from people there over the past few days and of course we, we witnessed you know euphoria on friday i think you could describe it as that on the part of supporters of independence then we witnessed, you know, the anger of those um, in Catalonia who were against independence and took part in who took part in a major demonstration on on Sunday. How would you summarise the mood there now? Has has the is the euphoria still there on one side and the anger on the other, or has that subsided? How, how would you describe it? Well, I think perhaps above all, it's confusion at the moment. Um, certainly from the the pro independence side, because you know they, they don't really know where things stand. Um, there's a feeling that they've lost a, a certain amount of momentum. Um, since the beginning of October, since the wake of the the referendum, when you know they really felt that they sort of morally they had the upper ground because of that police violence we saw on the day of the referendum. Um, since then, I think because there's been 
so much sort of intrigue um, and it's become so complex. I think you, know, you could argue that there's a feeling that some of that momentum has been lost on their side. But in, I mean, there is still that entrenchment. The, 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 the tension is still there. There's a lot of um, entrenchment. We, and we saw it on Sunday with the, the pro-union march. You know, there were several hundred thousand people out on the street. Um, and, you know, there weren't a lot of incidents, but there were, you know, there were some um, far-right groups who turned out, which, which adds to the, uh, to the tensions. Um, and the people I spoke to um, at that demonstration, you know, I didn't speak to any people on the far right, but there were a lot of people who were extremely angry, um, calling for Puigdemont to be put in prison, um, calling for, for an, e an even tougher implementation of Article 155 of, of direct rule. Now, that wasn't everyone I spoke to. There are others who are more moderate, but it seemed to me that th that mood has really heightened over the last month or so, and probably on both sides. You know, people on the, on the ind independent side, uh, perhaps many of them feel a lot more strongly in favor of independent, independence or, or against the Spanish state and the Spanish government because of what happened uh, in the build-up to the referendum on the day, day of the referendum itself. And those who don't want independence um, you know, were so outraged at what the, the Catalan government did and, and its attempt to break away from Spain in what they feel was such an illegal way. Um, that they're perhaps more more outraged than ever. Um, so I'd say, in that sense, um, I think society is perhaps more divided than it, than it has been at any point during this whole saga. And God, there's one other. It's a, this story is moving at a very fast pace, and there's one other development that. Uh, just as we were beginning the recording, really, this recording, um, agencies have been reporting that the Supreme Court has called for the on the Speaker of Catalonia's Parliament and five other you know, pro-independence deputies to appear before the court on November 2nd and 3rd. Um, and this is in the context of, of Spain's state prosecutor calling for rebellion and sedition charges to be brought against the Catalan leaders. Now, now, this has just happened, so without getting into that specific development, you know, is there a danger here that on one side you have a political process heading towards an election, but there may be a judicial protest process which is going to interfere with that really and and make things even more difficult you know to resolve well i i think the spanish government certainly wants all the the, the ju judicial sort of happenings to take place as quickly as possible but for that very reason because otherwise there is a serious danger of them getting in the way and being a distraction and um, perhaps giving ammunition to the the pro independence side um because remember that the the independence camp already has two senior civic leaders, Jordi Quixart and Jordi Sanchez, who have been, who have been put in prison already. Um, they're awaiting trial on charges of sedition. Um, and you know, that, in, in the eyes of the, the independence movement, that gives them, uh, that's another, yet another grievance. It, it's more ammunition for them. Um, I think the Spanish government will be aware of that. It will want these processes to move as quickly as possible. Okay, and Guy, just finally to wrap things up and, and briefly, I mean, where, how would you characterise where this story is, is at now? Has, has the crisis been diffused by the calling of the election and the fact that the pro-independence parties look like they'll take part? I think the calling of elections um, does sort of slacken the tensions somehow. It, it, it sort of calms things down a bit. It's something, it's perhaps the first thing that the, the two sides can at least vaguely agree upon. They're both taking part in this, or they both plan to take part in the elections. So that in itself, you know, is seen as a sort of a good sign, I suppose. But 
I don't think anyone is pretending that the calling of elections in December resolves the longer-term problem of Catalonia's relationship with the rest of Spain. Um, th there is a serious problem there, which is not going to be resolved um, by voting in December. Guy Hedgeco, thanks for that. Thanks a lot, Chris. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.